we're trying to wrestle with the unresolved individual and collective trauma of, of ourselves and of our history. That spiritually, the great healing issue of our time is how to understand our multidimensional energy field and its memories, including challenging mm. memories. And that the goal becomes North Node Leo to creatively integrate or to creatively actualize sufficiently to have a meaningful, light-filled, fire-inspired, creative response to those memories. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have more eclectic conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Hey everyone, I'm recording from my office space in my house that I'm living in right now, and I'm actually packing it up. I am leaving this week and moving to Portland. So I'm very excited about that and wanted to get this episode out (laughs) even amidst all this. I'm that excited to share it. Um, I interviewed Mark Jones. We talked about a recent book of his called The Planetary Nodes and Collective Evolution. So this book explored the connection between the planetary nodes and major historical events and historical figures. Evolutionary astrology, which is the branch of astrology that I work with and that Mark Jones works with as well, uh, this form of astrology heavily involves the lunar nodes, so the nodes of the moon. And these points in space relate to an individual's karma. Um, These can be our personality structures, like how we've tended to incarnate. Pluto will be like an underlying intention of the soul. And the South Node is kind of like the vehicle that we've tended to use in the past. So it can relate to some of our tendencies, um, which includes gifts as well, you know, things that we've developed and working with the nodes consciously in an astrology practice, in a personal astrology practice, is a lot about understanding how how you're personally growing in this lifetime. What are your patterns and tendencies and where, where are the places that you can grow? What things can you develop that support your soul um, actualizing its potentials in this lifetime? The lunar nodes are these two points in space where the orbit of the moon around the earth intersects the earth's orbit around the sun. And as it were, there are also planetary nodes for all the other bodies besides the moon. And these tend to be not talked about as much. It's a little bit more of a frontier subject. So this book on the planetary nodes um, is very pioneering in that way um, because we don't have a lot of content or research or ideas yet about these other nodes as much as we do for the lunar nodes. While the lunar nodes shift signs around every 18 months, 
the nodes of the outer planets stay in certain signs for long swaths of time, which could add another layer for us of reflection of how we collectively have engaged the karmas of these planets like Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. In this episode, together we especially explored the planetary nodes of Neptune, with Neptune having its south node in Aquarius and north node in Leo, and how Leo then relates to spiritual growth or healing. Just like we might aspire towards some of the qualities of our North Node. And as we discuss in this episode too, it's not to ditch the South Node either. Um, there's, you know, as Mark points out in this episode, there's meaning in the South Node. But there is also some kind of evolutionary arc that involves the North Node. So thinking about what does it mean? Like, what does it really mean that Neptune's North Node is in Leo? And some really beautiful meditations about cultivating or not just cultivating, but having a steadiness to one's inner light came through in this episode. Mark Jones is a practicing psychosynthesis therapist and evolutionary astrologer who is really brilliant. He's brought so much to the community with his books, teachings, workshops, and I think you'll notice from this conversation that simply the way he engages with reality is magical. And before we begin, I want to remind everyone here that my Evolutionary Astrology Intensive is coming up in May, and enrollment is currently open. So if you'd like to study astrology with me and take your astrology practice deeper, bring it more into a, an emotional connection um, with yourself and your life and build a lot of... Um, archetypal vocabulary for noticing how you already know all of these archetypes, how they're already infusing your life, but learning the language, learning the mapping tool so that you can see it. Um, and also so that you can start to read charts if you don't already read charts, um, natal charts for yourself, for other people, or if you are already deep into astrology to take it even deeper by applying some of these wisdom teachings about the signs and the planets and some of the astrology, you know, the techniques within evolutionary astrology, like looking at the chart from the lunar nodes and Pluto and the ruler of the lunar nodes to gain this portrait of an individual's karma. Um, what kinds of patterns have been brought into this life from prior ones, right? And how can you see those threads in action in your current contemporary life? And what is the Dharma here? What is the way forward? What is the purpose? And, and, you know, having a mapping tool or having a language for these deeper questions about life actually is really nourishing for the seeker within us, um, for the person in us who's philosophizing about ourselves and our place in the cosmos and students who have taken this course before you know, often report so much spiritual opening and growth in their connection with astrology, as well as a deeper compassion for themselves through the language of astrology, like learning how to access astrology as something that actually enhances your life and not something um, that creates, you know, a bunch of anxiety. You know, we really look at the chart from a perspective that is 
from a context that's deep enough to hold all life experiences, but also have um, an optimism behind it or a sense of possibility, um, which is just really important to me in my own practice um, and definitely comes through in my teachings. So if you resonate with the podcast or the forecast that I share, it's a pretty good indicator that you would resonate with the content in this course. I make myself really available um, to talk with students, there's pre-recorded modules and then weekly meetings. So there's definitely like a social and community aspect of the course. And then I'm available to talk with you, answer questions, talk with you about how you're integrating the material, because I think that that dialogue component is really important. I'm going to leave the link in the notes for the course page so you can learn more about it, read student testimonials and enroll. And I will leave us to the conversation with Mark Jones. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to see you, Sabrina. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about your new book and congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it was, as you can imagine, given the world circumstances, an absolutely wild party. You know, hundreds of people attended. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Did you delay the... coming out of the book? Well, yeah. I mean, the book was ready for a long time, but we spent an awful long time editing it because it it was a recognition that it was quite complex material and that everything A had to be technically incredibly clear Mm. and B that the better written it was, the less people would stumble on that particular issue instead of just the sheer complexity or newness of the territory. So in that sense, the book was slightly delayed being as it was finished a year, year and a half really before it came out plus um, COVID-related phenomena affected the editing process. People's lives right. were affected. And yes, of course, I celebrated with absolutely no one when it came out. Oh. <laughs> in fact, in fact, picture, people were posting pictures on Facebook of oh, enjoying the new Mark Jones book, right? And I had never even physically seen it. And then a box arrived from the publisher, you know, a week later. But it was yeah, nice to see. Yeah, this is the new way yeah. with, with COVID book launches. Um, yes. And it's interesting because I feel like the Jupiter, Saturn, Pluto phenomenon that we had in 2020 was on its own south node like pluto's right so you know this is this fascinating thing because all along many years ago it'd been my intention to bring the book out way before that point because it's such an obvious thing we've been building towards as we did this research we saw clearly many many years ago that 2020 was a big deal and then as we went further with the research we saw more and more it was a big deal and actually at uac i'm on record at uac in chicago pointing out a big chart of very significant global conflicts involving in particular South Node of Saturn um, and then the, the, the nodes of Neptune as a kind of recovery from it. So when you see the South Node of Pluto and Saturn, you know, the, the great alignment of Jupiter, Saturn and Pluto is occurring on the South Nodes of Pluto and Saturn, you know, really quite tightly, especially the actual Pluto-Saturn conjunction. It was incredible, really. And, uh, you know, I remember a sort of a time period where it's quite possible that my researcher and I were semi-frequently having conversations like, I wonder if there'll be a huge global conflict, you know, and I swear one of those conversations was going on. And somewhere in a distant room, there was a television with a news report going, strange new uh, virus in China emerges, you know, people not sure how to deal with it. You know, we were talking like that. December Jan, into January 2020. And then, of course, by early March, it was just apparent what form this 
signature was taking that that if you're looking at the planetary nodes, you knew the COVID thing was going to be a big deal for the world, that it was just happening at a time when, because, you know, you could say, look back in history and look at the Spanish flu epidemic after the First World War, which, you know, had a devastating toll in terms of numbers and say that COVID, you know, doesn't compare in terms of its impact, actually. But if you look at the way the world responded, the timing in our world, the way it's impacted our world and its, you know, international travel, its multiculturalism, its free flow of people and capital and uh, cultural influences. It's been absolutely enormous, hasn't it? And it'll be years in a way to come to terms with the impact of that. Yeah, it was definitely like a historic year and very yes. interesting that astrologers saw it coming. <laughs> it totally did. Saturn and- Pluto. Well, and, yeah. and, and, and I think the Saturn-Pluto is phenomenally important. You only have to look at Cosmos and Psyche, which was one of the leading books. You know, As we went into the initial research on the planetary nodes, I had two big influences, Cosmos and Psyche and the Book of World Horoscopes by Campion as investigative tools. And it's funny, isn't it? It's not to knock other forms of astrology, but we could observe that there are those who don't use the outer planets, who kept going on about the huge Jupiter-Saturn alignment. But, you know it doesn't really make sense in the same way, does it? I mean, you add Pluto to that mix and then you add the fact that it's on the south nodes of Pluto and Saturn. And that when you trace the lineup of planetary nodes in Cancer Capricorn, the fact that Jupiter, Saturn and Pluto have nodes in south node Capricorn, north node Cancer predominantly, uh, geocentrically and heliocentrically and geocentrically going back for centuries in the case of Saturn and Pluto, and you see this phenomena unfold where very sig- significant epoch-making events have occurred with those nodes. You know, the, the invasion of um, Poland that led to the Second World War, you know, the, the Gulf Wars, these just significant conflicts even in the 20th century and going back through time have these significant planetary node contacts in Cancer Capricorn. And it was a huge focus in Rudyard's work on it in 1971, the pamphlet he published, but he didn't really have a full sense of why. And I I still don't think we entirely know that the way that the planetary nodes geocentrically and heliocentrically group around the solstices, for example, the outer ones. And of course, God, I picked the outer ones to resolve that geocentric, heliocentric technical issue in that when you look at it like that, they're not that far apart. So I tried to minimize the technical mm. divide. Yeah. Yeah. I want to um, come back to this and just back up and have you like introduce yourself. I think a lot yes. of people listening know who you are, but in case for people yes. who are new. So hi. Uh, <laughs> hi, listeners. Um, my name's Mark Jones and I'm an astrologer. I'm a psychosynthesis therapist. So I'm a spiritually orientated therapist. Um, and, uh, you know, I trained in hypnotherapy also to help that practice. So my main interest, paradoxically, unlike the nature of this conversation I'm currently having with Sabrina, is astrology focused on personal transformation. You know, I looked at the planetary nodes because it became apparent to me that they were enormously significant in collective, well, in individual and collective processes of evolution. I would never normally take on such a research orientated task. And of course it has only come about because I'm working with a close friend an independent astrologer who is my primary researcher on these things. Cause I'm working with people 
too much of the time. To have time to follow those kinds of avenues with sufficient rigor and clarity to be able to write about it. But really, my primary focus with astrology is how do we encourage people to achieve their true potential, to find a sense of creative empowerment about their lives? Because fundamentally, and I think I'm doing no more than paraphrasing Gandalf here to Frodo in the minds of Moria, you know, you don't get to choose what kind of time you have. You don't get to choose COVID or no COVID. You know, you only get to choose how can I respond? You know, who am I really? What's my real response to life? And can I find something in me to rise up to life's challenges? And I just love working with people in that regard. So it's it's funny to me that I'm now involved in a process which effectively is a kind of astrological research or historical research. That's something I found striking about the book, actually, is like your descriptions of the individual people, historical figures that you used in the book. It's pretty transportive because it feels yes. like you're talking about them as humans. Like I can yes. tell the uh, psychotherapist in you, like in Thank this like, historical research text. Thank you. Yeah, that means something to me. And that was at least partially intentional, um, but also just it's just the way I work and the way I look at charts. You know, the feeling I had at a couple of points, Sabrina, was just fascinating, really. I remember it when I was researching Alan Turing a few years ago, and then I remember it when I was looking at, say, Martin Luther's chart, or even the moment I looked at Herschel's chart and his discovery of Uranus, you know, because I just knew, wow, you know, I'm going to be disappointed. When I looked at Turing's chart, I didn't really know if planetary nodes would work. And then I saw his Mercury on the node of Jupiter, this man that had broken through this whole code-breaking thing, that had this vision that effectively helped the whole uh, faith of Western civilization effectively counter a monstrably totalitarian or demonic force in some ways. You know, the, the absolute core of the Nazi ideology was extremely dark. Um, by the time I got to Herschel, I knew planetary nodes operating in all these different things. You know, I'd seen Martin Luther's chart, his um, Mercury-Neptune conjunction on the node of Uranus. You know, the printing press arises just in time for him to have his vision, the critique of Christianity that might lead to the Reformation. And so, you know, there were there were moments where I was looking at personal charts and I was almost you know, oh my goodness, you know, if there isn't a planetary node in this particular case, what do I think of my own thesis? But every time I felt that there was, and it felt like I was looking into an individual chart as I normally would to try and understand a person. But then at the back of that chart, there was this secret little window, like, you know, the, the little doorway to a secret garden or like Alice in Wonderland or something. You've just seen a rabbit with a top hat go through it. And those were the planetary node placements, this hidden dimension architecture you know this hidden room behind the chart where they were where individuals were interfacing with the collective stream of history i love that image um and i know you've done a lot with the lunar nodes and the lunar nodes are what people typically think of if we just say the nodes yes and you teach workshops on the nodes and um yeah i'm curious like how the planetary nodes maybe differ from the lunar nodes or how you would describe nodes in general, as far as indicators of past and future karma, um, just for some context. Great question. And 
mean, what studying the planetary nodes has done is effectively completely rethink or, or deepen my understanding of the lunar nodes. And this is especially due to, due to the late work of, and by late, I don't mean that Dane Rudyard is dead, which he is. I actually mean the mature work of Dane Rudyard. The work he did later in his life on the nodes has become my baseline for this kind of research. Yes, I mean, nodes are abstract points in space that cross the ecliptic. And Rudyard had two fundamental principles why they were so important. One, the two points describe a parabola of motion. So they're talking about planetary body. So when you have the two points, and this is a crucial question for Rudyard, you can't separate the nodes. No matter how much you like to, no matter how much easier it is to teach, if you separate them, you actually can't. They're created by a single momentum, a planetary motion. And uh, the ascending motion crossing the ecliptic is the north node and the descending is the south node. And because they are two points of parabola of motion, they're effectively telling you the whole circle or the whole oval. They're telling you the whole orbit. So because they refer to an entire orbit, they became the crucial component of his vision of orbital astrology. Astrology is not like singular. We look at the chart like it's a single photograph, but it's more accurate to say a natal chart is a photograph of a dance. And it's just one shot of the dance and the dance could start moving again. Mm. And Rudyard's way of looking at the nodes is an attempt to see the before and after of the dance. So that's just brilliant on that level. And the other thing Rudyard said was, because this parabola of motion is being created because it crosses the ecliptic, this line that the zodiacal signs or zodiacal signs are found on, it's effectively uh, an intersection that crosses what he calls the fundamental symbolism of the Earth-Sun relationship. The ecliptic is formed by the Earth's apparent motion around the sun, and that's what forms the signs. And so because the nodes intersect that, this parabola of motion, this entire planetary body of information is being contained in the symbolic journey of the earth around the sun, which he likened to the personality around, as it were, the spiritual self with a capital S. You know, the self in Jungian thought or the, the self in psychosynthesis, which the, the I is a kind of conduit for this self. So in a sense, the earth-sun relationship as re represented by the ecliptic was for Rudyard, a symbol of our higher self or soul. So the lunar and planetary nodes, as symbolizing planetary bodies intersecting that line are kind of effectively living commentaries on our relationship to our true self. Now with the moon, that's the personal relationship, you know, symbolizing something about the evolving personal unfoldment of your relationship to a higher self. Now, when it comes to the nodes of Pluto or Neptune, it's obviously deeply more mysterious what exactly that means. But when we looked at historical patterns, we saw these just fascinating things. I mean, for example, Sabrina, we, we started to dub this the Christ point. I played this down in the book because, you know, the book's asking a lot of readers really to take in this new information. I didn't want to come the across Christ just- The Christ point tips it exactly. over. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't want to, you know, just come out in robes or something or, you know. Um, It'd be appropriate for Leo North Node of Neptune. <laughs> well, in a way, yes. And that's a fascinating shift in itself. Well, well, so let me talk through the nodes of Neptune, right? In the time of Christ were approximately, so they're in Cancer Capricorn and they changed in the 11th century. 
approximately started to change geocentrically in the 11th century to Leo Aquarius. Where they were at the time of Christ is effectively where the nodes of Pluto are now, right now. So we have gone from a position at the start of the Christian era where Christianity is a sort of secret cult in Roman culture. People are meeting in underground tombs and sewers and having their secret meetings and being intensely persecuted. Neptune's nodes, approximately 18 Cancer Capricorn. That's where Pluto is now. We're now at a point in our civilization where Pluto is applying to the same point Neptune was when the predominant if you like, mythic image of our age or religious mythic image of our age was created. So we have this fascinating idea that effectively what, you know, our collective unconscious or our power dynamic or our sense of deeper unconscious meaning is wrestling with the Christ impulse. But yes, their nodes of Neptune now shifted Leo Aquarius. And I think that's a fascinating shift. And straight away in the late 11th century, you see, um, uh, a radical Sufi mystic executed for declaring that I am the divine, you know, the self, a kind of version of Atman is Brahman, but from a declaratory personal sense, like I am God. And uh, this is a pretty radical mystic and pretty intensely developed person, but of course it was deemed as uh, deeply inappropriate and or offensive. But it's interesting that that's, that execution happens around that transition time that you have this person suddenly declaring. And, and I wonder, Sabrina, just even in the nature of our age, as, as now the nodes of Neptune have gone from that transition point into approximately eight to 10 Leo Aquarius. So Saturn right now is on the south node of Aquarius. And oh, yeah. Yeah, I found that, you know, contemplating the so I work a lot with the lunar nodes with clients and you can see them in the collective too. When the lunar nodes shift, the collective conversation shifts accordingly, but these planetary nodes take much longer in a sign. So they characterize our relationship with the planet, I feel like for a certain amount of time. And so like Neptune, if we're looking at a person's spiritual development, Leo Aquarius is a huge part yes. of it. And what does that exactly. say about how we engage Neptune? I mean, from my point of view, over the last many years of working with people, it becomes apparent to me that both individually and collectively, and, and this is related to work I did on the archetype of Uranus as a, as a signature of transpersonal memory. You know, um, Mercury being individual memory, as it were, through data with Gemini and then discrimination with Virgo, Jupiter being our intuitive vision or faith or, or deeper vision of meaning with which we use to process Mercury, and then Uranus representing what Rudyard called a higher octave of Mercury and, and pushing beyond the bounds of even the Jupiterian vision. Because um, I, I think we're trying to wrestle with the unresolved individual and collective trauma of, of ourselves and of our history. That spiritually, the great healing issue of our time is how to understand our multidimensional energy field and its memories, including mm. challenging memories. And that the goal becomes North Node Leo to creatively integrate or to creatively actualize sufficiently to have a meaningful, light filled, fire inspired, creative response to those memories. 
and and be constructive. I mean, one of the great metaphors for that is in the Judaic mystical tradition, the kind of the the tikkun olam. You know, the, the uh, as as divinity came into the world, some of the vessels that contained it broke, and the and the fragments and filaments of light spilled into the broken debris of the world, and the just come along with their own vision of light to find those captured fallen fragments of light and, and reassemble them. I mean, that's the most beautiful sort of spiritual vision of the nodes of Neptune to me that uh, amongst the fragments, you know, I shore up these fragments against my ruin as the narrator of the wasteland by T.S. Eliot says in the early 1920s, I shore up these fragments against my ruin, this broken up, kind of feeling in our culture at this time that and the loss of some of the grand narratives and then the you know the feeling that i have that really emerged at a deeper point of my work that people's early childhood developmental material which i still think is so crucial and i still think the world hasn't really grasped what depth psychology was trying to offer it in terms of the power of developmental material that developmental material itself is a condensation from the soul memory, that, that it's a kind of, if you like, karma that you crystallize from your memory banks of your multidimensional self and that you come into your childhood effectively as this complex multidimensional being. And the signature experiences of your childhood, which are effectively beyond your control, you know, parents choose it or family members or where you live or the society or the cultural values, etc are a condensation of that memory stream and that we're all kind of, you know, like the hermetic vision of flying through the planets, like some soul through the concentric spheres. And then you land on earth. It's a bit, it's a bit like that. You, you, you know, you, the chart is symbolic of the journey you took to land here. And then it becomes, can we empower people who are here as radical as it were, agents of transformation, creativity, and giving their gift to life. And I think you see that a lot in contemporary culture, to be honest, in smaller forms, even the desire to some extent to be a star or to influence the world is a kind of lower iteration of that same sense of meaning or purpose. Right. I mean, like my vision of utopia involves the Leo Aquarius axis. It's like everyone's <laughs> lit up fully. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're in their purpose and they're integrated in community. But I feel like the way that people find their way to that balance is really dynamic. Um, like on the one hand, there's totally like a culture that's really cool with like saying affirmations in the mirror and like flirting with yourself in the mirror and being like, I'm the best. And like yes. that kind of like Leo stuff. And then there's also a culture that would shame that we're like throwing yes. around the title narcissist. So freely right like yeah i don't think we can shame that with Leo? there is there is clearly and that's a good point i mean i think to, to me we don't shame that part if, if you're in front of the mirror telling yourself that you're the best my problem with that is it's just not that effective because it's a dualism because you know you're trying to convince yourself effectively um but the desire to have an ego ideal or something to aspire to. It's like the positive vision of celebrity versus the negative. 
you know, is celebrity an ego ideal that people live up to a sense of meaning, a sense of something to aspire to, or has it become a vicarious means for absconding from your own creative path and, and making up for it by following, you know, the adventures of so-and-so or the latest movie or album by whomever. These are complex questions, but to, to ask them, you have to be sincere to ask them. You have to believe that someone in loving families, children come home, right? And they've done a drawing or they've got a little song. Would this drawing and this song light up the world if they weren't your kid? No, no. Sometimes the drawing probably isn't that great by objective standards. No one's trying to put it in the, <laughs> the museum of modern art, are they? The point is you love this little being and they're shining into their light. Now that's actually important. That's an important quality in the world. That's a healing quality, but that's different from being Picasso or, or genuinely being Mozart or something. But how we hold that difference is super important um, because, you know, and it, and it runs, I respect some of the people that criticize the narcissism. And I think we can do better than sat in front of the mirror, telling ourselves we're the best, like the kind of old fashioned vision of coaching. But I would argue only by finding a greater vision of coaching that finds a more loving stance towards the developmental needs of the person, including loving the little boy or girl within who made the drawing, even if it's not Picasso. And uh, that's more nuanced. And that's to do with finding ways of speaking to people that hit like a resonance, the different ages contained within them in a way, like tree rings or something, but the musical chimes version of tree rings, you know? And that the naivete that people criticize sometimes, perhaps rightfully sometimes, is the confusion of levels. The confusion of the child producing a response that loving people around them want to encourage and the difference between that and are you really making an artistic or creative statement? And of course, that's a very profound and nuanced gray area that one would want to approach fairly carefully. But I don't think we can... Um, I don't think we help serve, as you've picked up yourself, I think, this Leo Aquarius nodal axis of Neptune by being above it. I think that's an insincere stance to, to think we're better than it somehow. Yeah, I think there's some kind of spiritual opening or some healing redemptive experience that occurs through the Leo archetype potentially then because of Leo being the north node of Neptune. At least that's where I went with it. I agree. How, and this is something I found myself, as I've grown, I've become much more radically creatively empowered. Paradoxically, a lot of it's come from all my years of working with people and helping people. Like I don't have this kind of edge to my experience of my own value. I'm not kind of um, cringing at myself, perhaps like I used to, or worrying about where I fit in or what my value is. And then I find that even in domains where I'm not particularly skillful, that makes me a very empowered agent. And I've no, and I don't know about you, but I know so many creatively talented people. If I just take the example of music, because I was in a band in my early 20s, I just know a lot of, you know, really quite talented musicians, very few of whom ever found that power consistently to stay in that light place. Uh, and they and they struggle to ever express their gifts as a result. And there's a kind of sadness sometimes. You know, people don't know what to do with their creativity because the world, because society is naturally conservative and 
doesn't always care if you came up with a brilliant new song or a new painting or whatever. They don't know quite what to do with it. But also there's an internal failing sometimes with that place that people lose confidence in their light, even very creative people who have had success. And we see spates of suicides or, you know, the mental health issues or drug addiction of creative people because the light within them is so inconsistent. It's flickering. They're following a flickering flame. And actually, if you took the Leo symbolism to its absolute height or you placed it in the grand fire trine, you would have a solid light in the heart, Leo, that allowed you Aries to express assertion and courage because of Sagittarius vision, because that light connects you to cosmos. That's really beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of cool, isn't it? What do you feel helps um, sustain that fire? That's a good question. Goodness. I mean, just personally speaking, it's a kind of weird paradox at the heart of Leo that, to me at least, and I'm a Sun Pisces, ruling a South Node Leo, so this could be a complex answer, but I find there's this point at the cutting edge of the Leo fire in me is like it's on a point of a cross because at maximum self, I experience maximum giving to life. So, I mean, that's that feeling of like, I will follow. I'm, I'm, how can I explain it? When I experience maximum light, I'm not in the most look at me phase. I'm in a kind of before life itself phase. You're struck by the beauty of nature. You're struck by the beauty of the person you're working with. You're struck by the beauty of yourself, in, even in it. Includes self, but it's a part of a field dynamic. Like, you know, why are we even talking about this now? Do I think about these kind of things? Yes, but I'm talking about it because you asked me. That's the beauty of right now, because you are eliciting it from me, or it's in a shared space or a rapport. So to me... You transcend quite quickly the kind of, and, and you see the best pop stars do this, you know, the, the people that break through on your pop idol, even kind of thing. You see that the best ones are not just, you see all the wannabes, you see early on, there's a lot of, you know, ululating and posturing and things that don't feel quite congruent, but the people that tend to go further and further, like that young guy, I, I've forgotten his name, that sings with Queen now or something, Adam, something, you know, they find a power in their voice, they find a way of being who they really are, even though they're singing other people's songs. Me, I find that the paradox of the Leo self is, and this could be a Sun Square Neptune speaking, this could be a Sun Pisces ruled South Node Leo speaking, but the greatest light comes when you lay the personal self on the altar of reality. When, when, when you find the sense of agency arises and you realize I will serve, I will follow, I will dedicate, they come as like, I am statements. It's yeah. Yeah. That's actually, I think sometimes about the quincunx between Leo and Pisces. And I think about a celebrity accepting an award and they are like, <laughs> I don't know yeah. if this is an actual image or something that I made up, but just like them thanking God, like it's not their personal talent per se. It's the universe talent streaming through them and the people that go really far with leo often have a relationship with pisces or with a sense of being receptive to channeling something that is beyond them and moving that through them and also having a kind of reverent attitude toward their life path 
um, as opposed to it being solely about them, in which case there's a little bit less of that magic kind of Neptune energy streaming through, or it gets blocked up in ego stuff. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think that's an interesting point about the acceptance suite speeches and, and quite a forgiving one of the way certain people can crumble and melt down in that space. I mean, let's just be frank with each other. There's no, there, there is no selfish happiness only takes you to a certain point. Selfish happiness is great. Having some time to yourself, reading a great book, going on a great holiday, people like you, you're successful, whatever it is. But really, these are small happinesses compared to holding your child who you really love or or being truly in love with someone or um, feeling that you were doing what you were born to do in your life. The degree of alignment there, the way that soul or self streams in through the multidimensional field into your being is fundamentally fulfilling in a way that the selfish pleasure dynamic cannot be. Um, Hmm. For example, there's a power behind it. If you're in the fundamentally personal selfish dynamic, you get tired while you want some time to rest. I can't rest. You're complaining about it. If you really love your child and you're up multiple times in the night, yes. I mean, you can moan about it with other parents or your partner or something, but you don't mind. Sometimes it's a privilege to be exhausted walking to this little bedside where this person's having a difficult dream and being able to just rest your hand on their form and help them go back to sleep even though you're exhausted. It's coming from a fundamentally different place. You're anchored in a field which includes a greater awareness of love or meaning than the personal vision of living included. And when you can live in that place and yet have Leo, right? So when you can allow the the self to return, but within the dynamic where you're anchored in a greater field, where the love you're in or the sense of meaning is a greater power than you, and then you bring back in the creative, healthy selfishness, if you like. I think that's where really powerful creative action happens. Because it's, a, yeah. Um, what about fields then? Because you mentioned them a lot in your book. Um, and I, I like your vision about them. So I'd love to hear more. I mean, it just strikes me. Maybe I'm taking a vision that isn't exactly in the book here, but. It just strikes me that field dynamics are applying way, way more than people realize all the time. So like you and I are talking now, and there are all sorts of therapeutic ways of looking at two people talking where we could almost be like, say, in transference or projected dynamics, where it's like a tennis match or something. You know, I say something, you have a reaction, and then is my reaction filtered by my past? Or is your reaction to me filtered by your past, et cetera? Uh, yes, all of those things are clearly true. It's not like therapists are stupid people. But really, we're also both electromagnetic points of power in an emergent field. And in that space, you have this potential to transcend the apparent tennis match of dialogue, ideas of emotional, reactive thinking, content, etc., and realize that we're also uh, emergent points from the same unifying field. Now, I'm not saying a simple unity consciousness here. I think there's a naivety in the world about our potential spiritual unity. It doesn't actually mean we're all the same, or that even that all people are capable of being nice to each other. But I think that field dynamics point the way 
for understanding all sorts of complex phenomena, like how we relate to each other and how meaning occurs in the world. And then because the nodes are abstract points in space, they're not really a definitive physical form. We're really talking something about the way that, and it goes back to Rudyard's idea of the meaning of the Earth-Sun relationship, that the personal self is in a relationship to a greater self or soul. From that perspective, the nodes show the points of passage or meaning but that comment on that, you know, where is the personal self in relationship to the higher self or soul? And so astrology can be a field dynamic where charts are becoming multidimensional things rather than static images. People are field dynamics. You're manifesting your life based on effectively states of mind of being within a field. Um, and then the whole idea of nodes as, as waves of meaning or interference patterns, you know, that they are points of intersection where signals of meaning emerge from a background noise and intersect, lock in. Yeah. 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 Cause I think it was a through line through the chart examples that you use that people's personal, um, experiences and maybe like very catalytic moments in their personal life were actually intersecting with the collective field. So instead of it just being a moment that was personal for them, it became part of collective history. Beautifully put. I mean, I, I just cannot, I have to own my own personal experience here, which is just writing the book, just doing the research took me to that place. I mean, there were moments where I was living with these individuals and these historical events where it just seemed like I was being opened up to a secret architecture, a kind of that, you know, beautiful looking path through to the secret garden, <laughs> you know, that at these points of connection, a transpersonal collective domain that appeared to be almost at this point, a living intelligence within life itself or within history itself, that history itself had a psyche that, or that the events of evolution themselves had an intelligence or something that, 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 that this kind of astrology was peering into that was um, opening some little porthole like in uh, Alcatraz and looking back across the bay at the city, you know, you were just seeing this other world somehow. And, you know, Jessica Murray wrote a really wonderful, you know, some copy for the book uh, when she was passed a copy um, during the editing process. And and we used a quote from it on the front cover, you know, astrology like this connects us to our spiritual intelligence. I mean, I thought that was beautifully apt and I thank her for it. And she wrote a lovely longer piece. I mean, that's how I felt at points. I felt like I was being shown something. I don't feel that way. You know me. You know I can criticize astrology quite strongly and our, and our potential to feel a sense of superstition or, or higher meaning about it. But, but I felt that in a different way looking into this. I felt that... Um, and, and it's happened again recently. I mean, I'm, I'm studying, for example, the geocentric nodes of Mercury at the moment using a database of writers and significant authorial voices in the world to explore the geocentric nodes of Mercury. And there's a phenomenon that happens. You know, just, so this, this was just one day we discovered this. So we picked 60 writers. My researcher did a detailed preparation for me with all their South and North nodes of Mercury and 
you know, we, we did an analysis of whether planets were on it, whether the lunar nodes were on these points. And it turns out that for a few hours on one day a year, there is a phenomena in Taurus where, because the heliocentric nodes of Mercury drag the geocentric nodes into a shape. And at this one point in Taurus, it can happen that the north and south node of Mercury is on the same degree. Exactly. And you can have this point where for a few hours, the sun is on that same degree that they've been dragged onto. We found three, we found two exactly and one or two others inexactly, which I'll explain. Right? The two we found exactly, the two writers that we found exactly with that phenomenon were Shakespeare and Freud, writers that shaped epochs. The third one who was the closest was Marx, Karl Marx. His was slightly inexact, but he had the moon there too. So not just sun in Taurus on that point, but moon in Taurus on that point too. Of the 60 writers, the database, that have this weird phenomena where the geocentric nodes of Mercury have been combined to this one point, and then the sun lands on it, you get these three writers that shaped eras of thought. You know, people refer to Shakespearean England or, you know, Freud, Freud and modernity. And, and Marx clearly affected the lives of hundreds of millions of people just through political. Do you mean the nodes are in the same degree? Yeah, they're literally the same, the same degree of the same sign and the sun is on it. And it can only happen. It happens in April in the 16th century with Shakespeare. And it happens in early May in the time of Freud. There's this one point on one day. Now I'm not saying this is the sole signature because clearly you, you could have Bob the electrician from Oakland, you know, who was born on that day with that time. But isn't it interesting? Data set of 60 or 70 writers and the three that hit that exact point where the nodes are on the same degree. It only happens like this one part of one day in April or May. The sun just happens to be on that point, all on the same degree. And it's writers that influence the world to the extent that Shakespeare, Freud and Marx did. It's really interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? That is something. Now, I don't know exactly what that something is, but I mean, it's just, um, it's just bizarre, isn't it? That, that that it could exist at all like that. I don't, I don't know. So that's, yeah, I felt studying the planetary nodes that we still got domains, whole domains of astrology, which we have not explored yet, that open up fundamental windows to the way that history individually and collectively applies. And therefore that, you know, the emergent potential of contemporary life. For um, individuals who have conjunctions between planets and some of the planetary nodes, like how would you approach that um, in a reading, for example? Um, yeah. 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 It's very interesting, isn't it? That's something I'm really working on. I, I found it's quite a difficult thing to assess. It's, there's a reason why. In my first two books, my primary examples were people I'd worked with and why in this book they're not. Because, of course, I was trying to explore transpersonal collective significance. And that's not an easy thing to do when you're doing a reading for someone. You know, I start my readings, how can I help today? And I'm trying to figure everything to fit into what they need for their life. I can't be going, oh, it's interesting. There's a signature here. Oh, did you find this happened when you were you know, doing that. Um, but let's, let's start a few series of thoughts just from what we were saying. I mean, someone has 
sun around 810 Leo or the nodes. Roberto Asagioli had his lunar nodes on the nodes of Neptune. He created the first ever explicitly spiritual psychology. I mean, whatever kind of Jungian you are, you would have to acknowledge that prior to his midlife crisis, Jung was not explicitly spiritual. You can say that the later Jung is, and I probably would say that. But Sergioli has an explicitly spiritual vision of psychology from like 19 years of age onwards, you know, notes of Neptune, personal notes. So you could start to say, you could start to explore. It happened even at just, age 19? Well, he had the vision very young. Yeah, he had a series of spiritual experiences around his nodal yeah. return. Um, so what does that mean? Now, does it mean with everyone who has sun or whatever? No. So we, we have to be very careful. It's going, it's going to hit some people in ways that it's not going to hit others because they have an attunement to that quality. Um, but this is why I did those long sections on the history of psychology and the history of science showing that potential, you know, that Jung's Venus was on the node of Pluto. And he, you know, he discovers anima as soul for man or this deep journey into soul really through that archetype. But these were high grade individuals. I mean, clearly Carl Jung was, you know, arguably one of the towering geniuses of 20th century. Um, so it's very tricky to say, but someone has something in Leo Aquarius on that line. Is there something in their life where, where they can shine and where that's healing for them and others? You know, you can explore it on that kind of level. Um, certainly by the way, all the astrologers, over, I mean, I don't know, but you know, say, say like Rudyard green, various people that focus on the planetary nodes before, I mean, Rudyard's chart was lit up with planetary nodes. I mean, <laughs> all his stuff in Gemini Sag was across the nodes of Uranus. And you have this, you know, classical musician accidentally in some ways to begin with redefining the entirety of modern astrology and regretting the whole time that more people didn't listen to his, you know, classical compositions. Um, I, I think it's the great area for it to be honest. And, and this is such a brilliant question to have been asked because what was the purpose of writing that book? You know, let's just, what, what was the real purpose? Does it, does it have some huge personal thing for me? No, it was a lot of hard work. It's in an area of research that isn't really my calling. It's just, I saw it. When I saw it, I had a sense of emergent responsibility that what I was seeing was real enough to be shared. And that took a lot of work. You know, do astrology books sell so many that you're like JK Rowling and set for life? No, a lady, by the way, with sun on the north node of Neptune, sun in Leo. Mm. And that and that's triggered by the transiting lunar node. When she's trapped on a train, she's traveling from Manchester to London. And the British railway system is appalling. And she's like a four-hour delay, transiting node on her sun, which is on the node of Neptune. And she gets the download for the Harry Potter stories, starts sketching notes about what's going to happen, this young boy that goes to magical school, etc. Um, and then of course her vision of that appeals on a mass level, that other sense of meaning of Neptune, isn't it? That kind of sense that people's imagination, they, they people were waiting, weren't they, for something magical. They, they wanted that hit of childhood fantasy again. Um, so 
so the question arises, how can we look at charts? I, individuals need time with this material to almost be asking themselves that question because it's not appropriate to use people as guinea pigs when I'm doing readings with them. Hmm. I, I noticed, for example, um, a couple, I, I work with a, a young artist and her with her partner, they've bought land and they've set up a community and they've set up teaching centers for the different energetic practices they do in their composite, their North node, but their, their nodes in their composite are the nodes of Pluto. And, and they, they are North node in the composite cancer, North node of Pluto cancer. They have bought land in order to explore transformation and it will just create multiple transformational spaces for people. Or the lady that had Jupiter in cancer on the North node, of Pluto, Jupiter and Cancer in the eighth house, who received an inheritance from problematic land use involving fracking, who had been an environmentalist herself, but she had Jupiter Cancer. In the eighth house, she inherited land and money that came from fracking deals that she couldn't get out of, who began to work at setting up some kind of assistance for people trapped by a similar situation, that they would have legal protection, options to explore what they could do, uh, more responsible ways of investing the money, etc. There are these sort of in, it, it, snippets of how it could, how a deeper dimension of what's happening to you could be a reflection of the collective. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, coming back to what you were saying earlier about, we only have the time that we're given. Um, yes thinking about personal transformation and sharing stories about the kind of like mythic qualities of people's lives or how people rose to the occasion um, can be really inspiring for anyone who's seeking to make meaning out of their experience or step into a more powerful version of themselves or a more creatively actualized version of themselves. Um, So I wonder if, you know, what you're saying too, about people kind of having to apply these ideas, um, cause they're so new, the way that studying astrology or having a personal relationship with astrology opens up a lot of personal meditations that can be of this nature, um, of like, what's my purpose? Who am I in a bigger context? I mean, that's my favorite thing about astrology, that astrology is the ultimate excuse you could say or the 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 ultimate symbol map the ultimate Rorschach test the ultimate um except it's more than that as we both know because because there is something to its inherent structure although that is quite a mysterious thing i mean i think people project onto astrology that it is like a a car manual or something or a manual for dealing with your washing machine you know it's a set of instructions for how to use the thing or how to repair it or something. Whereas it's much more akin to a great Shakespearean speech, you know, a speech from Hamlet or something of which hundreds of books have been written, each with different interpretations. Astrology is much more like that than it is a car manual. Yeah. Um, but the feeling is that within that, there are these symbolic points for meditation, for contemplation that could give this heightened sense of significance. I mean, I remember when I discovered my ascendant was on galactic center. I mean, that just felt cool. I did not know what that meant, but I was running around like a happy thing 
for an hour or two in the astrology conference where I found out when I was a student, you know, it just seemed cool. What's wrong with it just seeming cool for a while and just seeing that <laughs> lead you, you know? That is a like, really cool signature though. And it yeah. makes sense. You have yeah. some stuff lined up with the whole sun and Pisces ascendant on the yes. galactic center. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I remember I had two different responses from astrology. It's quite funny. So I ran up to Philip Sedgwick and said, what does it mean? My ascendant's on Galactic Center and he ran with me. So I was this excited puppy with Philip Sedgwick running along with me. But all he did was ran me to the bookstore bookstore, uh, so I could buy one of his books that had like a page on Galactic Center, which didn't really answer the question. I remember going up to Jeffrey Green in the era when he was still around in person and saying, hey, my ascendant's on Galactic Center. What does that mean? And Green just looked at me and said, sit with it inside yourself and see what it means. You know, so he was like, he was like, it was like talking to Yoda or something. Um, but um, I, I just think those things are cool that it's not just, it's back to that thing. Do we look down on the North Node Leo? It's like just that feeling of it's cool or that feeling of it's meaningful or inspires a sense of meaning in my life. That's not just naive. I mean, even the best astrologers in the world don't know what some of these things mean. As I start, as I start all my more serious talks on the planetary nodes, I just go, don't worry if you don't understand all of this material today. No one does. That's the thing about nodes. They really, like every time I dive into them, or especially if I've taught them and I have to think about how to put them into words, these nuances about them open up. And it takes me, it took me a long time to understand them astronomically even. Like even if I saw the graphs, I didn't really know what it meant. Well, and I've, my research has created some fantastic animated glyphs that I use in teaching now that show the difference between geocentric and heliocentric and how they oh, cool. operate from different vantage points. It does help. I need it. I need my research to do that just for me. I mean, I'm not the most technical astrologer. I am much more a kind of psychological, psycho-spiritual kind of, um, you know, investigator of people's reality rather than a technical researcher. But I have to say it's massively reformed my whole understanding of the lunar nodes. There's a whole other subject here, which is how my study of the planetary nodes for years changed my understanding of the lunar nodes. Can you share a little? (laughs) So some takeaways. There's no separating them. If you really, truly, profoundly accept that you can't separate the South and North Node, then you can't do that thing where you make the South Node bad and the North Node progressive. You can't be as simplistic as that. Because let's just say you live in the Bay Area and you move to Portland, Oregon, let's just say. (laughs) Is, you know, does it make the Bay Area bad? Does it make the things that you did in the Bay Area bad? If you make that move, no. If the South Node is your past, if it is some sense of the inheritance you bring with you, is that inherently bad? No, it is inherently meaningful. It is not dualistically either good or bad. It is simply meaningful. It is an accruing of meaning in a particular domain. Now, could you then say the North Node might be required to counterbalance the accruing of meaning in that particular domain? Sure, I'll go along with that. That's a much more gentle way of stating it, because I work with people all the time who are bordering on traumatized. I went through this big phase of it when I was developing this material. Perhaps that's significant, the timing, but 
you know, literally people crying in the first few minutes of a reading saying that I've got South node in the seventh house, North node in the first, I'm not meant to be in a relationship. I'm not meant to be happy in relationships, that, that kind of thinking, it really exists. And I would argue, and certainly it emerges from my understanding of Rudyard's work in his later life. It just doesn't make any sense at all. The nodes can be increasingly seen as um, symbols of this electromagnetism. We're talking about this field dynamic. And they are therefore like two poles in an electrical charge, creating the electromagnetic field. You, you couldn't do away with one of them even if you wanted to. It is the flow between them that creates the charge. So the ideal would be perceived not to get over your south node and develop your north node, but to truly activate the south node and have it flow meaningfully through the emergent expression in the north node. And that's actually fundamentally different and way less simplistic and judgmental. So that's one of the big takeaways. It's changed my whole way that I would want to talk about the way the nodes work in a naked chart. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I was influenced by your thinking on this. I think at some conference some years back, you used a yes. metaphor about a suitcase on a plane as the South Node and that it might have some useful shit. You don't exactly. want to just throw out the suitcase. <laughs> exactly. Or, or you could say like on a hike or something, the fact that you have a compass, a map, you know, a thermos flask, some warm clothes, maybe one of those emergency transponders. You might really need those things. Yeah. But it, yeah, I think that definitely with astrology, finding a way of making meaning of the chart that is life enhancing, as opposed to using the symbols to justify some sense of personal doom is important. Oh my God. I mean, we could have a whole other subject <laughs> on the problem of, and it's related to the nodes of Neptune, perhaps this problem of projecting our unresolved personal hurt and trauma onto the world, onto symbols of meaning, onto the chart, you know, the, the transfer of early developmental shame, for example, onto your chart. I have a bad chart. I mean, I realized this fundamentally when I worked with this very exceptional lady in many ways who'd survived enormously devastating trauma in her early life, including the incursion of a, you know, a sexual predator into her life as a child. And through these years of recovery, this changing relationship in herself to herself and her own chart. But when she first shared with me the chart of her daughter, she didn't want me to say anything about it to her because she was so like in this fear that she would be perceived as a bad mother or, or the times where because of her own trauma, she had had to take herself away from her daughter. And she used to sometimes physically beat herself or just go through these intense emotions so that she could go back to her daughter clear of this intense, um, you know, toxic flaming up of the trauma from her past inside her own psyche. And I realized something as I worked that through with her, just how profound it is, you know, because that was an extreme example that shows us what more moderate examples are really doing that are secret narcissism effectively, you know, um, what's special in my chart or what's wrong in my chart or what's challenging or this transit that's coming up, the fear that we have that we project onto the chart. And I was only half joking that it's a Rorschach test, you know, in a way, way more meaning than astrologers would like to admit is being generated in our astrological analysis and our thinking and feeling about our own chart by that kind of process than we would truly like to admit.
Right. I feel like um, your books, The Soul Speaks and Healing the Soul are great for this topic as well. Um, And yeah, you write about in The Soul Speaks, like pouring over your chart when you were younger, looking for symbols (laughs) of either, I don't know how you worded it exactly, but kind of like, you know, will my life be good or am I doomed? And like, what was it about this map that's imbued with such power? Exactly. Great memory. And, um, you know, I'm honest about that. I'm not, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this from some superior place. It's like now the older experienced therapeutic figure looking down on people that feel that way about their chart. I'm just remembering how I felt. Yeah, in my no, 20s. it's an important yeah. conversation yeah. with astrology. And I find that with yes. teaching astrology, like it's a conversation because people do come in with that kind of like, is there something wrong with my chart? And that's like a really quick thing to be like, let's, let's look at it differently. <laughs> it doesn't exactly. Happen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And but it's, it's again back to that sense, isn't it, that we were talking about, that the nodes of Neptune, you're trying to find that light. And to begin with, you can't help but project your light outside. Most people in their early, mid-20s have not fully um, grounded the light inside. I mean, most people at any age haven't fully grounded the light inside. I mean, there's this incredible passage in Jung called The House of, of Gathering, where he talks about withdrawing the psychic projective energy from the world and bringing it truly back into yourself. And I think it's an incredibly profound phase of individuation, but it's incredibly hard to do when you're young. It's basically, to a certain extent, impossible when you're very young. So everybody is, to some extent, projecting that light outside. And then the chart becomes a kind of mirror for that light potential. You know, oh, I can see it. I'm really inspired. I read this book. I read Karma, Fate, Astrology, and Transformation by Arayo, and I, I see this, and I feel this way, or... Boom. And this is the importance for me in something I've raised with the traditional astrologers sometimes in these terms, they use like reintroducing malefic and benefic and all the kind of detriment and fall. Uh, for me, it's a problematic language. It doesn't help people. When you know how much unresolved psychic material people are bringing to their chart, when you realize how much unresolved shame people, especially people who've had certain experiences of abuse or invasion of privacy are bringing to looking at their chart. And then you say to them, Venus is in fall or something, you know, you're just into this territory that even if there are these technical reasons for using those terms, they're not ideal terms. I, I don't see astrology as good or bad in that sense anymore. I've truly transcended that process, but I remember clearly the me that hadn't, you know, and I remember exactly how it feels and how important it can seem to people. How like, um, and, and really in the profession of astrology, there is, if you'll forgive me, a certain amount of manipulation of this quality, you know, like here I am the figure that can maybe give you those answers or, you know, like the emperor in the, in the gladiatorial ring. Is it a, Oh, sorry. It's a, and I've actually heard of stories, Sabrina. I mean, amazing stories like um, one lady, very upset at a certain point in a reading with me, talking to me about an astrologer, and she'd asked them, could I be an astrologer? And they'd just gone. I mean, that was their answer. People, like, <laughs> for people listening, you just moved your thumbs up to a Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. And it's like, because her Mercury 
There's something about her Mercury. Maybe it was retrograde. Maybe it was an aspect to something or other that this astrologer. Gosh, I have want. Mercury and Pisces retrograde, so <laughs> I'm gonna I'm like to champion that yeah. placement for everyone. Exactly. Good. <laughs> Good. You go because I said to her, just I said, imagine this research experiment. You get a hundred charts of astrologers. Right? There have been successful astrologers in the last century, and you just lay them out. I said, you will see as many different Mercury, you will see as many Mercury placements as there are astrologers. You will see unique conditions every time. There is no one Mercury placement that makes an astrologer. Um, it's, it's the false way of thinking about astrology, and people use it to um, ally with a punitive depressed, broken part of themselves. That's my real concern. Yeah. You know, that it that it allies with a shameful place where they can't, they can't believe they don't. Yeah. I'm glad you're bringing this perspective because I actually have like a variety of types of astrologers on the podcast. And I, I do, I'm studying Hellenistic astrology right now to try to understand it, but I didn't consider Mars and Saturn malefic for years. Like the concept yes. wasn't even in my mind. And so I have a much different perception of Mars and Saturn than a lot of people that learn about them immediately as these bad guys. <laughs> and I feel like it's just having to deconstruct some of the, the psychological dynamics that we bring to astrology, our own practice or client sessions is really important. And I think that once that there's greater sobriety there, that even entertaining some of the ideas of fall or detriment might be more fruitful, but needing that level of clarity first around, am I just bringing this like projected dynamic to the stars as a, you know, I, I, I personally feel it. Yeah. It's a fundamental issue. If you went, when I learned astrology, I learned it from a Kabbalistic teacher called Warren Kenton and I studied Kabbalah first and then I studied astrology from Kabbalah. And in Kabbalah, there are two, two pillars that support the pillar of consciousness. There is the pillar of mercy in which you would have Venus and Jupiter and there's the pillar of severity in which you would have Mars and Saturn. And the pillar of severity is just as important to the pillar of consciousness as the pillar yeah. of mercy. And so, you know, say like an issue like having healthy boundaries or the ability to assert your cause in an important discussion. These are just fundamental qualities, just as much as Venus and Jupiter are. The idea that one of them is good and one of them is bad, or that when you see some of one of them coming your way, only good experiences happen to you is just frankly, I think, disturbingly naive. I appreciate it. <laughs> um yeah, I think too, the severity that goes into deciding that you're going to live up to your potential is like being willing to confront some difficult things about oneself or one's resistance or one's psyche in a more honest way, as opposed to just being overly, I don't know a good word for it, but. Well, the argument I think goes, and I've had this conversation with you know, prominent astrologers who have this perspective that it's naive to not warn people about significant challenging experiences. I mean, A, I dispute that. Look, Saturn signatures, and, and it's a frequent fear, right? I was in a group, I was teaching on the planetary nodes at the end of last year, a group in um, Arizona, I think, and 
a young lady was talking, who was a member of the group beforehand. She was about to have her first sat in return and she was visibly anxious. In fact, she was basically admitting she was totally scared. And I actually broke my slightly meditative pause before a long teaching workshop to just click my mic on and say to her, look, the sat in return might be the making of you. You know, Saturn is a maturation signature and your Saturn return can be the great coming together of your sense of self and agency in the world. To give another example, when I met my wife, she had Saturn on the descendant. You know, you could say, oh, it's going to be a cold, difficult relationship, something, or it's a very significant relationship. You know, 21 years later, we're married, we have a child, we've lived together for 16 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I'm saying is Saturn is not a simple Saturn um, presents opportunities to mature. Sometimes opportunities to mature are very difficult. If your thing was smoking crack and running around town, robbing people, then your time in jail might be an opportunity to mature. Now that can seem apparently bad. Saturn was on his Mars. He was sent to jail, but is it bad? Is it, is it bad? Uh, it's just what it is. There is no good or bad. It's another opportunity to realize something about yourself or not. Now you can say that there are truly catastrophic things to, that happen to people that just truly are unambiguously bad. Sure. But can we simply show that Mars and Saturn are the sole providers of that experience? Um, it's... Um, to me, a dangerously limited way of thinking about not just astrology, but life itself. Right. Um, so Mark, how can people connect with your work and, um, do you have any upcoming events that we should know about? So you can go to my website, plutoschool.com and check out, there's loads of free stuff, podcasts, writing blogs, and then there are more advanced courses, if you like, for people who are more seriously interested. A a coaching. Yes. Well, so yeah, thank you for reminding me. So yeah, in September, I am offering a two year psychosynthesis coaching program with a colleague. So yeah, yeah, I, I am teaching the vision segment. So I'm teaching the teaching weekends. I'll be attempting to go through the entire history of psychology and draw out the most important uh, psychological and spiritual material. I'll be doing a whole section on psychosynthesis, the first explicitly energetic or spiritual vision of psychology. And then I'll be doing a term on the alchemy of the relationship, as I call it, how to work with people. But the whole time then, my colleague, who's just a brilliantly experienced supervisor, will be offering small supervision groups for people to explore their practice, you know, their client work. And this is non-licensed. We're not attempting to be some official counseling qualification. This is for alternative practitioners. This is for astrologers, yoga teachers, Reiki practitioners, whatever, to feel this sense of deeper engagement potentially with their clients. So that's super exciting. We already have a really great group. I knew it was super important because I don't know with my uh, schedule, my career around astrology, if I, how often, you know, if I'll be able to do this as an ongoing thing, this might be the time I do that. And then we look at other things. And I knew it was super important to have a really great group to do it because the group will be to a certain extent, especially as the course continues co-creating the teaching to a certain extent through the caliber of the group. And we have that already a, a good size and really high quality group, but yeah, there are still some places we'll be finalizing those places in the next few months. But if someone here was listening and 
you're really already starting to work with something like astrology and you're really working with people, but you're having that experience where you don't know how much you helped someone or you're not sure what you should have said when they came up with that difficult memory or the abuse they shared with you or challenging material. What this course offers is two therapists with 20 years experience each to help guide people with the decision-making that you have to make when you work with people one-to-one and that you have to make all the time effectively. So we're going to try and share our experience as therapists in a non-official therapist setting, because I think this is the way forward. I mean, coaching in a more developed sense than the be the best kind of speech is arguably the way forward. How many people can afford years of psychotherapy and, and your expensive analyst multiple times a week for years and years? We've got to find new ways of going forward, a greater democratic vision of sharing tools for transformation. So that's a super exciting proposal. Um, I'm doing research on the personal planetary nodes at this point. I have my own ideas around a larger sort of guide to modern psychological and spiritual astrology to put together next year. This attempt to kind of take all this deep dive to Rajar and really show how it emerges into a contemporary vision of astrology. Um, but yeah, personally, I just feel, so, you know, the world's in a strange place and obviously I haven't really been anywhere or done anything for a very long period of time, but as an introvert who works with interesting people around the world remotely and who has a grounded family life, <clears throat> I found this whole because I've been in a national lockdown here. It's just extreme. You know, we haven't, there are no shops open. There've been no shops open for months since before Christmas. You know, we're living, I'm living in this reality where <clears throat> when you go outside your house, it's like a ghost town apart from people walking on a nice spring day or something. Wait, there's no shops open? No shops open. No, only food. Okay. You can't buy any in quotes, non-essential items. Um, in this world, I just feel this increasing sense of purpose, to be honest. I feel I was joking with someone the other day. <laughs> Sometimes I say I'm this weird English spider at the center of this crazy web of around the world <laughs> that I talk to. Yeah. But um, I was also joking. I'm like, I've been like a retreat guide since COVID hit the world. I've been working with the people that wanted to do more of a deep dive whilst that experience happened to them. And it's been fundamentally incredibly enriching. Um, so hopefully, you know, like both of us are doing, we're, we're trying to find new ways of sharing what inspires us, aren't we, really? Right, yeah. I feel um, <laughs> that image of being a weird English spider. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the center of, my... of a web of people, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think of myself as a spider sometimes too for... That, you know, that image, I think even just like the World Wide Web and all of that is is a spider spider situation. And you actually get the metrics when people land on your website and spiders can feel when things land on their web. And just like being attuned to subtle shifts in the field is spider magic. So um, I'm glad that you're offering these things and continuing to innovate within astrology um, and sharing it with the community. Thank you. And it's a great pleasure and privilege to do it. It's been really nice to talk to you today. And to be honest, you know, it's just a heartfelt privilege when you work with people on the cutting edge of their real life, you know, 
where their life meets some mystery or some question or some huge process. You know, okay, it involves all sorts of states of mind and feeling, but bottom line, it's just a privilege, really. It's a privilege to be a part of. And it gives me this incredible sense of meaning and purpose. And then I look around in the world sometimes and I see that that is a deficiency for a lot of people. A lot of people are working on a very much lowered sense of meaning and purpose. And yet, if you actually have profound and real intimate dialogues with people, meaning and purpose is everywhere, from the smallest thing in your life or the opportunity to just treat the person that treated you horribly in a slightly different way than you did before, all the way to, um, you know, what do you do with the shit things that happened to you in the past? I mean, that's the great human question, isn't it? Shit things have happened to me. It's hurt me or I feel reduced by it. What can you do about that? Well, there's actually absolutely loads you can do about that. You know, it's incredibly creative. You can get to this point where the soul's energy comes into you and you feel like you're in some creative editing suite about your own life. And that's the place we can help people get to so that these shit things don't have to just define you forever. They're already shit. Shit that it happened. Fine. But why, you know, it doesn't have to stay with you forever. Right. It's important. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Sabrina. It's really nice to see you. You seem really well. It's fun talking to you. I hope we get a chance to catch up again soon. Thank you. It was great talking to you. And now, you know, since having this conversation, I have been left thinking with that concept of maximum light at maximum giving. And this idea of the fulfillment that we feel in life when we feel in touch with ourselves, our gifts, and we see ourselves acting fully on that gift and living a life of purpose and meaning. And that, that in a sense, you know, really actually links up with something that I was reading. Sahara Rose has a new book out called Discover Your Dharma. And I was reading the beginning of that book and she's kind of discussing how happiness, you know, really, really similar thing to what Mark was saying here about how happiness isn't just about personal pleasure. That is definitely a part of it, but it's about feeling like our lives are meaningful. And something that I think about for Leo is this concept, you know, and with the solar principle in general is magnanimity and how when we feel full of ourselves, and I don't mean full of ourselves in like the the negative sense of that phrase, but I mean full in our expression, full of our essence, that we naturally radiate something that is generous, that there's not scarcity at this point, but there's enough light to go around. Like the sun beams so much light onto the earth and think of just like all of the plant life and all of the, the life that is sustained in general from the sun's heat and all of the consequences of the sun's heat. And similarly, like when we are just like fully on, we are in our light, we are in our essence what kind of magnitude that really has. And it's not always the most look at me or so like directly out there, here I am kind of energy, right? Like it can just be a a glow or an impact or a ripple effect 
that's meaningful, um, that's fulfilling in its nature. And I think I'll be reflecting a lot more, um, you know, continually about this Pisces Leo connection or this North Node of Leo with Neptune connection. And it, it just brings up so much for me, like even thinking about, you know, why am I so interested in personality as an astrologer? And I think of the personality as a house for the soul and the soul can be happy in its house and can have like everything it needs to kind of like fulfill its purpose or the personality can be this hindrance to the soul. And I mean, you know what I'm talking about, where there's certain parts of your personality that actually really support you and are aligned with you and help you move through the world and through your Dharma path. And then maybe other parts of your personality that actually like really create a lot of, um, challenge or even suffering in your life. And it's like not the deepest part of who you are. It's just your tendencies or maybe like, let's say that you struggle with emotional reactivity and that creates conflict in your life. It's like that can be worked on. That can be changed. It's not the deepest part of who you are. And yet it is a window through which the deepest part of who you are shines through. Right? So when I think about my interest in the human condition and my interest in having one-on-one conversations with people or having astrology classes, it's, it's in service to people connecting to their essence. Because I think that when we are in touch with our deepest truth and we are just, you know, radiating our essence, we are in touch. There's a natural generativity that that creates in community and whatever layers obscure that, whatever social conditioning layers, you know, or social programming layers or personal traumas obscure or fracture that light um, are things that we, we actually grow through moving through those obstacles. But, you know, in general, I'm not, I'm not one sitting here thinking, why am I bothering with astrology? Why am I not doing something that really matters? You know, I do believe that this really matters, but sometimes I have to think about how to explain that, like why it matters for us to discover who we really are and be in touch with our essence and how it's not just a personal process, you know, but that when we embody ourselves and we embody our essence, that we actually give our light to the world around us and empower and inspire other people as well. Um, or we, we gather our energy toward this creative giving and the impact that comes from that is so much more generative than if we were blocked from doing that for whatever reason. And so I really did mean what I said earlier in this episode that my vision, my personal vision of utopia is based off the Leo Aquarius axis, uh, people being fully in their light and integrated in community. And um, of course, that is such a complex journey. It's not, um, you know, there's simple kind of truisms that we may talk about where it's like, do what excites you, what lights you up as part of your path. Like, that's a very simple thing to say. 
But thinking about its complexities and its richness, you know, we can always explore those nuances, especially through a language as deep as evolutionary astrology. I'm also reflecting on what Mark said about the natural conservatism of society and how when you um, come out with a great new song or something that people might not necessarily care, you know, and I think that that's part of that, the strength of the inner light um, is knowing how to persevere and believe as it takes time for that light to mature in terms of a social expression and also figuring out, you know, he used the term, I think, gray area to talk about that real question of, is this just some like art piece I made or am I a Picasso? But there's a gray area there. And as someone, you know, maybe I'll talk about this more and more because it, I'm sure I will, but before things started taking off for me as an astrologer, I always just like, that's what I knew I was going to be. I didn't doubt it. I always felt like it was only a matter of time. And so it didn't really matter to me if reality was immediately reflecting that, like if I was immediately getting approval, um, or if the moments of approval or recognition were just like a flickering candle, right? Like, because I trusted it from within and it, it manifested. It's my full-time career now. And I never struggled with believing in that. And part of why I never struggled with believing in that is because I felt it as a truth inside of myself, but I also studied these archetypes and studied, you know, general laws um, of reality or laws of nature. And it just struck me as a pattern that if you really have faith, you know, and you're in alignment, things are going to work out. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not a terribly difficult equation to get behind. And so I think that there's something about having a personal relationship with astrology or these wisdom school teachings that can be really impactful and like having this guidance or this inspiration or these concepts side by side as you actually live your life in real time and discover and live into that question of who you are and what is your light that you are radiating out. So thanks for listening. Um, if you've been enjoying this podcast, I would love to read your review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you take a screenshot of your review before you click submit and email it to me at sabrina at monarchastrology.com, I'll send you a resource library about creating and elevating your reality that actually contains several hours of content, videos, lectures, things of this nature about deep, radical creativity. Thanks for listening and I hope you have a beautiful week. 